Man, what a week. Uh, we're recording the week of August 30th, 2020. And this past week, we were remembering Emmett Till's lynching that happened August 28th, 1955. His death, his death captured the uh, nation's attention in bringing a spotlight into segregation, particularly in the American South. Also, uh, Major League Baseball commemorated Jackie Robinson's uh, being allowed to play Major League Baseball. Or, I'm sorry, breaking the color barrier. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no. No normally, here. Yeah, normally celebrated April 15th, but the way COVID is set up, they're cele they celebrated less past week. Also, Kenosha, Wisconsin, mm. yeah. uh, where a 29-year-old African-American was shot and wounded by police on August 23rd. He was shot he was, seven times. Yeah, he was hit by four of the seven shots, Oh, uh, fired at his back yeah, during an arrest. And then uh, the police shooting was followed by protest. And we're also following the story of an Illinois teenage gunman who is now facing criminal charges over the deadly shooting of those protests. Two people died. Uh, so there's plenty of uh, resources for Emmett Till and Jackie Robinson available everywhere. And of course, you can also follow the news out of Wisconsin. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that in future episodes. But then Friday night came. And that's when yeah. we learn about the passing of Chadwick Boseman. He was an American actor. Was. My gosh. He was an American actor who played several historical figures, such as Jackie Robinson and James Brown and Thurgood Marshall. But he's probably better known for his role as superhero Black Panther. The movie Black Panther that made him an international star. So how do you guys feel about hearing of uh, Boseman's death? Uh, okay, so I got home on Friday night and I got on Facebook and I think the first post I saw was actually Abdul's post about it. And I was like, no, there is no way this is real. Like this cannot be happening. And as I kept scrolling, I kept seeing more posts. And the first thing that I was thinking is he looked so young. Right. Like I he looked so young. Like I actually thought he was maybe closer to my age. 43. He just yeah, looks 43. so great. And I was like, man, like he's so young. Then I realized that he had a wife, you know, um, and then just thinking about the impact of Black Panther. I still remember when Black Panther was released. And I think black people all over the world were thinking we finally have our own thing. We are being represented where it's just us. And I think right. he really did a good job of just centering blackness and centering black stories and black art and man we we will miss him we'll miss him and we will remember his impact yeah that's that's absolutely right you know and i so yeah i was on like a a phone call a conference call and so i didn't hear it till afterwards but yeah when i heard it i felt i felt some kind of way too and and i mean it meant you know black panther meant meant a lot to a lot of us because of all the reasons you said, Justine. And then also I thought about, um, you know, one of the things that has been a refrain in our show has been finding places, people of color, finding places to exist outside of white supremacy. Yes. So that I feel like that, that explains in part mm -hmm. the cultural phenomenon of the black Panther movie for us. Because Wakanda was this place that existed for thousands of years and was yeah. untouched by white supremacy. Yeah. yeah. 
And so that oh, meant yeah, something to us. That meant something to us. And so, you know, when you hear the expression that um, representation matters, this is like a really profound example of that. So um, it meant a lot to me, you know, and my son. And, um, you know, so my, my license plates have T'Chaka on them. And yeah. my son has T'Challa on them. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, you know, we, yeah, we, uh, there's, there, yeah. So, and then there's, we had, uh, the last thing is, so my son on his 18th, 18th birthday, we did, we did a whole Black Panther theme for his 18th birthday. We, we decorated the house like Wakanda. Um, and we got my son and his friends, they all were part of it. And so when he came in, he didn't know what was going on. When he came in, he came up the stairs kind of into our house. And we're, here we all are kind of in the living room. And we're, we're flanking the sides of the stairs, me and his friends and whatever. And so, and, and we're doing like the, the, the Wakanda forever sign and kind of hunching our shoulders, like that, that whole thing when he comes up the stairs. So, I mean, yeah, it meant a whole lot to a lot of people. And so um, Chadwick Boseman was, was a phenomenal uh, gifted uh, character actor. And so his, his footprint will not be soon forgotten. And now mm -hmm. I'm just wondering what's going to happen with the MCU, what's going to happen with the Black Panther sequel. So the last thing I'll say on yeah. that before we open up a whole other can of worms right. is, that, <laughs> is that I think in the comic book, Shuri is the next Black Panther. And I think she, they should cast Letitia Wright as the next wow. Black Panther. And Wakanda already has plenty of Black girl magic with the Dora Milaje and, yes. and, and even the Black Panther goddess herself is, is a female. So mm -hmm. it's natural. Uh, give Letitia Wright the nod and let's keep it moving. Yes. So anyway, I'm Absolutely. done with that. Absolutely. It. Yeah, definitely. He would miss much impact. Uh, I mean, the whole movie... Just uh, that one scene where he's he's coming into the lab and he's giving the salute, you know, like the, yes, the salute the and, the, and, the, and the music's going. I'm like, come oh on, man. <laughs> I mean, anyway, yeah, we can yeah. talk about this all day. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he will definitely be missed. Yes. Greetings and what's good, everybody. Welcome to the Christian Soldier Podcast a social justice, faith-minded podcast featuring three friends from across the diaspora exploring life at the intersection of race, ethnicity, gender, culture, politics, and basically living while black. I'm Abdullah Muhammad. I'm Andres Amador. And I'm Justina Kingy. And we are just three POC in the cornfield, living life, loving Jesus, and fighting the good fight in these rough and tumble podcast streets. So welcome back, soldiers. Thanks once again for joining us in our virtual living room as we jump into part two of our three-part series on decolonizing your theology. So once again, my name is Abdullah, and you can find me on IG and Twitter at datdudullah. And so Andres and Justine, where can they find y'all? Uh, you can find me at Twitter at Andres Underbar Amador. And you can find me on Facebook. Send me a message on there or post on my timeline. My name is Tina. Akini. So T-I-N-A is my first name. My last name, A-K-I-N for Nigeria, Y-I. Bet. All right. So, and then as always, you can find all of our social media links and the ways to contact us in the show notes for each episode. And so last time, y'all, we talked about uh, what is colonized theology and we gave some examples of it. So in this episode, we're going to discuss what decolonized theology is and give you several specific examples of things you can do to do your own work. 
And at the end, we're going to give you each one call to action. We're going to suggest one thing that you could do to practice decolonizing your theology. So we're going to mention a lot in this episode, um, but don't be overwhelmed. So at the end, when we give you kind of a thing you can do, choose, just choose one thing. And remember, you always have the show notes to refer to, and you can come back uh, to those for reference as you get proficient in one area and you want to go pick up something new. So, um, as I said, we have a, we have a lot to cover and we want to keep it to one episode, hopefully. So, um, we're going to get just right into it. So Justine and Andreas, y'all ready? We're ready. Yeah. Yeah. Bring it. Let's get it. So the next track on the Christian soldier mixtape is still called losing my religion, but we reached way back in the vault for this one. So like the old Blackstreet song says, it says, what we're going to do right here is go back. Way back, back in the time. <laughs> so, so we're going to go back to 1991 and the REM mega hit Losing My Religion. So that was released some 29 years ago. Wow. <laughs> 29 yeah. years ago oh, as we record right. this episode. <laughs> Man. Ouch. And so, but I think it's also, it's perfect to our discussion on, on decolonized theology. So just check out just some of the lyrics. and. Like, just imagine someone is speaking them. Oh, life. Life is bigger. It's bigger than you, and you are not me. The lengths that I will go to, the distance in your eyes. And he says, oh, no, <laughs> I've said too much. I set it up. And he says, that's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight, losing my religion. So he says, I'm losing my religion, trying to keep up with you. And I don't know if I can do it. But, oh, oh, no, I've said too much. I haven't said enough. And then one, one of the verse says, every whisper of every waking hour, I'm choosing my confessions, trying to keep an eye on you like a hurt, lost, and blinded fool. Oh, no, I've said too much. I mean, I can go on and on. The song's amazing to me. So as we talk about decolonizing our religion, what better way to describe the situation that people find themselves in when they come to the conclusion that this whole Christianity thing could be the greatest scam in the history of time? Wow. So, I mean, think about like the trappings. We don't like like causing trouble at all. Listen, (laughs) we... We excel in grabbing the third rail and holding on with both hands. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, okay, so think about like the, 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 some of the trappings of Western, of Western Christendom, right? The, the white supremacy, the sexism, the racism, the homophobia and transphobia, and the, the theological, historical, and ecclesial amnesia that just makes folks want to bounce. And so, like, for example, looking back on our Nick of Time episode, and like I said at the top of this one, um, it makes things like agnosticism and atheism really compelling. And it's why black folks join the Nation of Islam. They join the Shrine of the Black Madonna, the Moorish Science Temple, the Black Hebrew Israelites, the New Black Panther Party, and the 5% Nation, all of that. Because those of us who believe in a higher power or a, de- a deity or deistic as, in some sense, we just are looking for ways and places to exist and actualize our spirituality. And so, again, the most consistent like refrain of our show is that marginalized people are just looking for spaces to exist outside of white cultural supremacy. 
And so we just like we're looking for spaces free of that from the LGBTQIA plus community um, for, you know, sexism and on and on. And, and really, people just want to be. We just want to be so. But like 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 Michael Stipe, I've said too much. So Justine and Andres, what y'all got? <laughs> nice. Good job. Well done. <laughs> now, here's the thing, though. I'm doing a little bit of research. I know because I was I was listening to you uh, recite the lyrics. And it fits perfectly with what we're talking about. But the thing is, ironically enough, if you re-listen to those lyrics, what the lead singer, Michael Stipe, said is that uh, the lyrics, they're not about religion. It's mm. a Southern expression. And they're from, the, they're from Georgia, R.E.M. is. Yep, that's good. So, that's good. But, but here's the thing. It refers to losing one's temper or civility or feeling frustrated and desperate, which matches with what we're talking about but what he was saying is remember the song every breath you take by the police mm-hmm. oh come on now that's like a classic joint of course i remember it's, that one. it's the same idea it's being obsessed with mm-hmm. someone else so that's that's his thing about losing my religion so i thought that was that was interesting but the lyrics themselves the lyrics themselves i mean if, if you want to focus focus in on what we're talking about i think they they they, they fit. It just happens that according to the person who wrote the song, it wasn't about religion, which is, which is interesting. So it was, it was about relationship though, right? Yeah. About the, you know, the same idea of, of, of yeah. uh, like uh, every breath you take, you know, I'll be watching you every step you take, every move yes. you make, I'll be watching you. It's being obsessed with somebody else and losing their religion, losing their civility, being desperate, wow. being frustrated that which can still be said about being frustrated about yes religion and yes. christianity so so you just taught me something new i never knew that about the song i never knew that and but i think wikipedia. Yeah, even wikipedia can be your friend ah the interwebs yes. <laughs> so but yeah and i i think you're right that the 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 double the double meaning there i think still is really good yes yes i think it works both ways actually definitely Oh man, I think for me, like the second verse really stands out. That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight, losing my religion, trying to keep up with you. And I don't know if I can do it. Mm. And, you know, in our last episode, (laughs) we said that the theology that a lot of American believers have believed is very whitewashed. And for people of color and in a lot of spaces for women, no matter how hard we try to fake it and mask it, we cannot do it because we are otherized and we are viewed as an aberration. And I think for me, this song, like the lyrics are, they are on point for decolonizing our theology. Yeah. I, I agree. Like I said, you know, it's just, it's just interesting that it's, if you view it as a, desperate romantic and well think about it this way i mean we are in love with christianity and the idea behind it we are desperate for it and we are frustrated how it's been misused and abused and we would like it to be a certain way so anyway i think it i think it still kind of fits so all right let's keep it going folks so like we said before there's two basic things that we want to cover in this episode One of them is, what does it mean to decolonize your theology? And then the other thing is, what specifically can all of us do to begin the process of decolonizing your theology? 
So Justine, uh, why don't you kick us off? What does it mean for you to decolonize your theology? Um, okay, y'all. So when I think about this question, I think context matters. And in our last episode, Andres really talked about this, about how our viewpoint and our worldview informs how we view God and how we view the gospel. So I want to share with you guys a very quick, maybe a personal example. I grew up in Kenya. And when I was growing up, the prosperity gospel was the end thing. Literally every preacher, every church I went to was talking about name it and claim it and prosperity. And God wants to give you all these things. Now, when you think about it, God is a giver, right? He's a provider. But I think sometimes our context can cause us to have a very limited view of God. And it can really cause us to put God in this one box. Yes, God is a provider. He's Jehovah Jireh. But he is so much more than that, right? He's so much more than that. Now, all that to say, a colonized theology gives us a very, very minuscule scope of God. And so decolonizing our theology has got to begin with seeing the gospel in its fullness, getting to know the whole story, the global story that God is writing and has been writing for centuries. Hmm. Now, in the American and the Western context, this entails starting over. We need to start over. We need to scratch and start over. We need to read our Bibles afresh. For those of us who are believers, we're listening right now, like we need to read the Bible afresh. And I'm going to be sharing a little bit more because I've been spending more time in the word, mainly because of recording this podcast, because I'm like, God, like I have believed a lie, you know, and I have believed just specific sections of the gospel and specific sections of the Bible without accepting the whole Bible and the whole gospel in its fullness. And, um, we need to begin to see the world and the gospel through a multi-ethnic lens. Essentially, we need to center the multi-ethnic expression of God. And this entails uplifting the voices of the marginalized, be it women, widows, orphans, immigrants, and people of color. This will mean scratching how we lead sermons, how we read and teach the Bible, the songs we sing, and how we lead those songs, how we do Bible studies, right? Um, and the praxis by which we apply the word of God. And I want to just dive in real quick into one example that's very personal for me. Um, and that's worship. I love worship. Um, I lead worship at my church. And, you know, I think for all of us, like I think of this kind of like as love languages, I think we all have different ways by which we connect with God. And for me, I just connect with God through music. Man, I just, I just love music. And, um, I would say we need to decolonize our worship because ultimately our worship does inform how we view God. So if all you're listening to is white contemporary music, that's giving you a very limited scope, right? That's giving you a very limited scope of who God is, right? And here's the thing. I lead worship again, and a lot of white contemporary worship is God, you are good to me. God, you are merciful to me. God, you have saved me. God, you have reckless love for me. And all of those things are good and they are true. But again, they give us a very limited scope of God, right? But the moment you begin to, um, to widen the kind of worship that you listen to, the kind of worship expressions that you surround yourself with, it's like, it's really going to begin to change your heart for the world and your heart for God. So I'll give you a perfect example. There's a song by Tasha Cobbs and Kira shared, and it's called 
your spirit. And that song says, not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. Right? That song doesn't necessarily talk about me and my needs. It's saying, Father, I need you to empower me through your spirit because life is hard right now. Right? Um, And so, again, like I just, I would encourage all of you who love worship. And Abdul actually challenged me in this. Take about a month and listen to worship that you would otherwise not listen to. So for me, as an African woman, I am beginning to listen to Asian American worship. Right? I'm beginning to listen to Asian American worship. And I'm listening to more African American worship. And that's changing. It's changing my scope. because. I'm able to listen to different voices and I'm able to center different experiences. Ooh, that see. Yeah. See, you went there. <laughs> yeah. You went there because like, okay. You mentioned like kind of the, the, the me, the me focused focusedness of all, mm-hmm. of all of the, you know, kind of the, the, the CCMs and the Hill songs and the different kind of, you yeah. know, and which, you know, as you were talking about that, what the first thing I thought about was, yeah, that completely fits this this personal Jesus narrative. Mm-hmm. Like that completely fits the Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, which just we don't find. Me. Yeah, just for me, which we don't find in the pages of Scripture. You know, I mean, we are saved as part of God's saving work. Yes, but not because of it's something for us personally. If that makes sense, right? So the focus isn't on us; it's on Him. Mm-hmm. So that's really good. And, but yeah, and then like you said, so, so, and this is like the, this is advice I give a lot of people when talking about decolonizing your music and your worship. Um, if you spend time listening, as Justine said, if you spend time listening to, to, uh, to traditions other than your own and like, don't listen to anything else for a month, just like you said, right? Just bathe yourself in the experience of someone else's experience as much as you can musically for a month. Yeah. And what that will do, like, even like if you don't change anything in your current set list for every single Sunday that you're doing, what it will do is it will, it will change your sensibility for musical timing. It will change your sensibility for riffs and runs. It will change the way you play notes and chords. It might even change the structure with which you construct the music, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and make it and give it just kind of a, a different flavor. And I mean, if, if you do that, I think one, that's one way of, of, of decolonizing your worship. I mean, we could spend probably a whole episode on just this one. Mm-hmm. But I think that's that's one where we experience the most colonization. You know, I remember talking to um, a brother from Cameroon about how when when missionaries came and they showed up in this in this really really um, vibrant, expressive tribal worship culture, and these dudes showed up with six string guitars singing love songs to Jesus. <laughs> I mean, man, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> And, and so they not only brought the word of God, they brought their cult, they, they, they imported, they imported their culture to that, to, 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 to that group. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that to me, like those kind of things just really grieve my heart and grieve my spirit, you yes. know? So again, yes. we could spend a whole episode on this, but re- do some serious work to decolonize and deconstruct your musical theology because it's part of what you're teaching your people every single Sunday when they are in in the pews or in the seats listening passively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm reminded of a song uh not just for me, 
from common hymnal. And the whole idea is the chorus mm -hmm. says, Jesus, you're not just for me. So, <laughs> so yes. uh, this whole idea of individualism, again, which I bring back from the previous episode, it's, it's that Western European philosophy of the individual above everything else that has crept into our theology. And that's one of those things that we definitely need to <clears throat> decolonize. Um, I also want to bring back a little bit, again, like something that I said from last week, the idea that Christianity is political. Uh, I think we run away from issues of the day because we want to say, oh, no, that's, that's, that's political and we don't get into that. Well, we do get into that. We are, I, I, I don't want to just say that we're just a political philosophy because it's, it's more than that. But at the same time, it is. I mean, all these conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, they're all just trying to answer the question, that how do we organize ourselves as society? How do we deal with one another? And Christianity has an answer for that. So I, I just, I, I want to, I want to reemphasize that a lot, actually. Um, mm. And, and I, another thing to de decolonize, so I was thinking about is sometimes Christianity is, will call you to be unpatriotic. And I'm talking in the American sense. Ooh. Because, I mean, think about it. Don't hurt them. Don't hurt them. <laughs> I mean, think about it. All nations have borders, right? Christianity doesn't have borders. The nation, the United States has concerned itself, and it's part of this debate. It concerns itself with us versus them. Who's in, who's out. But then as Christians, we go, oh, there's no Jew and Gentile. But here we are concerned of who's in and who's out and all that kind of stuff. The nation also demands an allegiance. So, you know, we put our hands on our heart and, and we pledge allegiance to what? A flag? Uh, we're that small now? We're that small? No, we're, wow. we're way bigger than a flag. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and I'll keep this short. Just, I, 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 I mean, another thing is it's also the way we, we, we talk about the American value of strength and courage and whatnot. And there was a tweet, uh, I don't know how long this was, but it read, I don't follow a meek and mild Jesus. I follow a bold, strong, and courageous Jesus, right? Well, that's just a misunderstanding of the word meek. We think that meek yes. is about being a wimp and being soft and just mushy and whatnot. You know, in, in Numbers, in Numbers 12, now here's an interesting thing. In Numbers, Numbers 12, uh, uh, 3, in the uh, English Standard Version, it reads, now, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were of the face of the earth. Okay, fine. In the Christian Standard Bible, it says, Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. Now, Moses wasn't weak. Okay? Moses stood up to Pharaoh. He actually argued with God. <laughs> he led the Israelites. <laughs> Come on, so there's, there's no weakness in, Mo in, in, in Moses. There's no weakness in Jesus. Yes. Right? So basically, the idea of meek in the Greek is when you control all the energy that you have within you. Right? That's, um, yes, the best the, the way we explain. Yes. It's, look, meekness for the Greek, in the Greek, is self-restraint. 
it means remember when the when the disciples were saying that oh jesus you know like some city i forget the city and they said oh shall we strike shall we send lightning to them remember that yeah okay i always found that so interesting in that passage i was like wait wait a minute these guys have the ability to, to bring, <laughs> to bring some lightning into a town <laughs> so what does jesus that's say good. no 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 okay that's restraint that's meekness in the in the greek sense of the word interesting it's it's also where we get turning the other cheek the reason you can turn the other cheek is because <laughs> if jesus is telling that you can turn the other cheek i take that as you have the ability to do some damage to this person if you allow your impulses to take over that's where restraint comes in wow do you know what i mean yeah and in the jewish part it does talk about humility the way we understand the way we understand it so just the sense of that the idea that meekness is soft and we shouldn't do that and and like this whoever this person was saying that i'm not going to follow a meek jesus well jesus was meek <laughs> you're yes. just gonna have to deal with that <laughs> okay you're just gonna have to handle a meek jesus so that's anyway. stuff oh, right there. just one more thing and then i'm and then i'm about about these oh i know it's it's political season and and we're recording this <laughs> late in the fall getting ready for elections and whatnot and i just gotta say man if if your christianity fits nicely into one party i gotta question your christianity because it shouldn't we should be politically homeless oh <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if one party the ribs answer, again, you work in the ribs. Right. If one party can answer all your questions about not not answer all your questions, but like, oh my goodness, everything I believe about Christianity fits into this party or that party. Oh, no, it doesn't, and it shouldn't, and it can't because it's bigger than that. It's way bigger than that. Okay, I want to get off the soapbox. Oh, <laughs> uh, see now, see now, you're the one off on a thing. <laughs> I, I can, I, my goodness. No, that was, that's forever. That was really good though. And I, yes, you, you couldn't be more right. Um, so I think just, and actually before I get there, I want to, I want to come back to something that we discussed last week. We're talking about black liberation theology last week. And, and Andres mentioned that, you know, for example, so what, what has come to be known as black liberation theology actually came from Latin America and the theological tradition of Latin Christians. And it was just kind of liberation theology. It didn't get this, this negative connotation to it until it became quote, black liberation theology. And so I want to just, you know, say a couple of things about kind of the advent of black liberation theology and how that fits into our colonized, decolonized conversation. So to clarify black liberation theology, it is, it's a theological perspective that comes from, again, African-Americans, come from African-American biblical scholars and seminarians, really. And so what it does is just like liberation theology in the Latin context, it contextualizes the Christian experience for black people to try to provide some scriptural framework to help us overcome the effects of, of systematic and that is to say social, political, religious, and economic oppression and injustice. And so, um, 
and you know because it comes from so like for example james cone is seen one of as one of the the or if not the father but one of the fathers of of um black liberation theology and so he called it a rational study of the being of god in the world in light of the existential situation of an oppressed community relating to the forces of liberation to the existence of the gospel of jesus christ so that's how that's how cone himself defined black liberation theology now the thing that i wanted to say here is that there is an inherent problem with calling it black liberation theology because people knock it and try to say that it's that it's um, that it contextualizes the black experience in a, a, a way from proper quote systematic theology or regular theology. So, <laughs> I mean, catch that right? Yeah. So, black yeah. liberation theology is a diversion up from is, is a diversion from theology. No, no, say it right. Say it right. It's a deviation from, from what? From white theology. Okay. Yes, it, it's it's a deviation, and and that's my point. So so. Because of the construction of this thing called whiteness, it defines what, quote, theology is and the assumption of what Ooh. that is and, and the assumption of what it is not. I mean, come on. So that in, inherently, one could make the very strong argument that the term theology itself is a white supremacist term. Oh, wow. Okay, you're going to have to let that marinate for a little bit. Yes. So just, I'm just, I'm not even, yeah, let that one sit. So, but think about the, so the problem with calling it black theology again, so is, is that A, it was given that term, it wasn't given that term by black folks. And B, it assumes that only black people or native or Latinx people have context. Men. Because Again, Cohen himself talked about it's it's a it's a rational study of the being of God in light of the existential situation slash context of an oppressed community. So to call it black liberation theology assumes that only people who aren't the majority culture have context. It assumes that white is normal. Yeah. So think about the racist idea in that. So because it assumes that white is baseline and white is that which is normal and white is that which is standard, it tries to really hide whiteness in plain sight. And it tries to convince people and actually gaslight people into thinking that white theology isn't also contextual. So, I mean, just think about the, the arrogance and the brazenness in that. Yeah, but if also if you read it just on the surface, the term black liberation theology only black or latino or brown or whichever need liberating also yes it's 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 <laughs> the, the original all, yeah wow it's the same it's the same the same math as black lives matter people hear black lives matter oh well so do white mm -hmm. lives and blue lives and we down the rabbit hole in that one right, right. but it's, it's the same calculation so but to come back to what decolonized theology is for me is um, I think overall decolonized theology means or and decolonizing your theology means understanding that the, the theology that we have or that we pass down always occurs in a sociological context. Mm. Always. Right. So good. So. Um, if I could, I want to give a, a little bit of long division on that, because what I mean by sociological context, I mean four things. So the first thing I mean is 
understanding that the contributions of what we call theology always seems to come from people who have come to be called white. <laughs> right. And, and when they, and when it hasn't, we often assume that, that, that it did. So I'll give you some examples of theological figures of color and their contribution later in the episode. Uh, but when I mention those names, many of you will have assumed that they were white or of some ethnicity of Europe. So the second thing that I would say is that uh, what I mean by sociological context is that we actually must get really skilled at seeing white and seeing whiteness. Mm -hmm. And rather than assuming that it's neutral or normal or some baseline position or some essential state of being so, so forth. Right. So for listeners, I want you to really think about this. Whiteness, the sociological construct slash invention of whiteness has a culture hmm. and that culture is specific. It's intentional. It's cultivated as well as being soci soci uh, socially, legally, economically, and politically reinforced. Hmm. That's the second thing that I mean. The third thing that I mean about decolonizing your theology, and this is the longest one, is that it means looking at the Bible and other religious contexts too, for that matter, mm. but looking at the Bible within the context of context, mm. right? What do you mean? So, so I mean that the Bible didn't just fall out of the sky intact. So it was written by people who actually lived. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Right. And so whether one believes that the Bible is the inspired or inerrant word of God or not is really irrelevant to that point. The lives of the ancients and the processes of canonization still occurred within a historical, social, and even political and economic context. So it wasn't this high-minded theological thing that became the canon. There was politics involved in that. And so, for example, like think about the, so the recognized canon of scripture that we have in our hand. Whether, whether you're Jewish and read the Hebrew Torah, if you're Catholic or Protestant, if you're Muslim or Mormon, no matter what translation or what iteration of the text that you, that you venerate, that text was written, compiled, translated, distributed, and taught. Or it was taught from a certain context, and that context was structural, cultural, political, social, historical, anthropological, philosophical, and theological. That's what's all in that context. And that context always has a purpose and it always has an agenda. And so, good. so just understand for a second so, that so good. Uh, agendas aren't inherently bad. So we only view them as we only view them that way. The idea of an agenda itself is really amoral. And so it's the practitioner of the agenda that gives it social meaning. So for example, Mother Teresa of Calcutta had an agenda. Gandhi had an agenda, MLK had an agenda, Malcolm X had an agenda, Shirley Chisholm, Fannie Lou Hamer, the recently departed representative John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, they all had agendas. And so did Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, the states that seceded from the Union in 1860 and 1861, the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention, and the, the kid who, who, who shot the people in, in, in Wisconsin. And the students who burglarized and vandalized one of the residence halls of buildings in Iowa State University just last weekend, they all had agendas. Even our current authoritarian in chief has an agenda. We're not going to go too much into that one, but I'm just going to be completely honest about my, my personal feelings on this. His agenda is profoundly dangerous. Mm. 
So I said, I said that, that decolonizing your theology meant four things. Like there, there was three things I gave you. Here's the fourth. And then the last one is pretty short. And so lastly, it means that the context of theology has often been explicitly and always has implicitly been to serve the interests of people who have come to be called white people. So those to me, that's what I mean about um, what decolonizing theology means. It means understanding those four things I just laid out. So I know that was long-winded. I'm really sorry about that, but I feel like I had to say it in that way to make sure people really understand exactly what people of color are reacting to and what we're opposing when we talk about decolonizing our theology. So good. Yeah. So, and, so good. Yeah. And those four points, those four points will be in the, in the show notes. Look back in. <laughs> they absolutely will because nobody's going to remember all that. <laughs> so good. Y'all, we have discussed a lot. Goodness, when I think of what Andres shared, when I think of what Abdul shared, that's a lot to take in. Right. And so we want to just have a Salah moment, a moment of rest to just ruminate on what we've talked about today. And this also means that it's time for our liner notes segment. And this is where we take a short break from the fight and talk about a song, a piece of art or culture, a book, literally just anything that is feeding our spirits at the moment, anything that's inspiring us and giving us life. So, Andres, what's been feeding you lately? So, uh, there's the Broadway musical, the hit Broadway musical, Hamilton, right? Uh, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it by now. Well, I've never heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it um, here um, in the morning. It's, it was great. It was, it was awesome. And then it's also on Disney+. Plus. So, if you got Disney+, Plus, I recommend that you check it out. But then in 19... Uh, uh, 19, 2016, 2016, the Hamilton mixtape came out and that's where a bunch of, uh, like, uh, rappers, uh, and R and B singers. And they just, they just took, they were inspired by some of the songs in the, in the, in the, in the musical. And then just, just took off with their own version of it. Well, the one that's giving me life is immigrants. They get the job done. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's got a great old school hip hop beat. Um, and it's got, oh, I'm trying to look for it where I lost its place. And it's got uh, a Canadian rapper, Kanan. I hope I'm saying that right. Kanan? Uh, Kanan. Kanan. Yeah. Um, and other folks, uh, Snow the Product, Riz uh, Ahmed, and Residente. He's a Puerto Rican rapper. It's great. Uh, it's, that song's been on repeat in the last two days, like forever. So that's, that's the thing that's given me life, uh, on the Hamilton mixtape immigrants, we get the job done. Mm. That's good stuff. Oh. Abdul, what's up with you? Um, anything, your kids again, some other story about your kids. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> See everybody about the jokey jokes today. <laughs> um, I, I'm gonna stab you right now. <laughs> So, no, okay, honestly, here's what it, what's given me life today and what's give, been giving me life, life lately is or are millennials. 
the generation of millennials, Justine, your, your, your people, y'all are we giving me play, life y'all. right now. We don't play games. No, you do not. And that's, that's what I'm saying. Like I, th- there are, there are a few, a few different reasons why one, when you think about, um, you know, that all of the, all of the, the protesting, like the peaceful protesting and peaceful demonstration about, um, black lives matter and say her name and and Mm. all these things are really largely driven by millennials right you know who who have kind of you know say what you want about millennials as they're lazy and they don't care and whatnot that is completely (laughs) untrue like immigrants millennials are getting the job done right now preach so that's just giving me life And, and i can think about several examples um but, you know, a, a couple of my friends who are millennials, Justine, you being one of them, and, you know, a couple of books that I have been reading um, from, from millennial authors and who even a couple of them are for the top end of like the older, they're almost Gen Xers, but they're, they're millennials. But I mean, so I think that the millennial generation has given me life. Y'all, y'all are doing it. Keep doing it. Keep teaching us old fogies how it's done because, yeah, we need y'all. You know, it's so interesting you say that, Abdul, because I've kind of been doing some self-processing. And for those of you that don't know me, maybe like you've never met me in person, but I can be pretty direct. And like, it's not even intentional. I'm just like, hey, this is how it is. And this is how it is. And I feel like millennials, we're kind of that way. We are like, we have nothing to lose. You know, it's like, we want to see a just world and whatever the cost is, we're willing to pay it. So anyway, for me, y'all, and I'll share this before, but like what's been giving me life is honestly the word of God. I feel like I'm just in a season where I'm like, I just need to be in the Bible. And um, one verse that I recently ran into on Friday is Luke 3, verse 7 through 9. And I'm going to read a little bit of this, but basically the context is that John the Baptist, he's talking to Jews who have come to listen to him, right? Um, so John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. Um, and he, and he calls these people a brood of vipers, which is a very strong accusation. <laughs> he calls them a brood of vipers because they were guilty of a religion that was very focused on the outward appearance, but was void of humility, repentance, and living out what God actually requires. Mm. And he tells them, and I'm quoting directly from the NIV version, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you out of these stones, God can raise up children for, for Abraham. And essentially in this verse, John is reminding the children of Israel that whenever we stray away from repentance and truth, God can very well use other people, even non-believers to fulfill his purpose, right? He literally can bring life out of stone, out of what we think is dead and pointless. God can use that. And I think this is very relevant to today where, and we talked about this in the last episode, where in a lot of spaces, we're seeing white believers who are apathetic, right? Um, We are seeing white believers who are silent in the face of violence and racial injustice. And y'all, here's the thing. God is raising up people outside the church to get the work done. He's like, y'all don't want to do the hard work of justice. You don't want to to do justice and to uplift the voice of the oppressed. Guess what? I can can find other people to get the job done. 
No, I think if you are someone, if you're a person of color, if you're a white person, regardless of your ethnic identity, if this is you, I think this should be a wake up call. If you are someone who is doing the hard work and you look around you and you see a lot of apathy, this should give you hope. Right. So for me as a believer, when I look around me and I see now I have a lot of white friends who are really doing the hard work um, of seeking justice and loving mercy. Um, but I also have a lot of white believer friends who they're kind of just there. They're like, oh, my gosh, all lives matter. And you guys are overreacting and black on black crime. This verse gives me hope that, you know what, if you want to be quiet and apathetic, God is going to use other people. So I'm good. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> Y'all, the word of God is so relevant. Like it's Yeah. Wow. Thank you, Justine, for just proving my point. <laughs> wow. I mean. Yeah, you you just gave them the business right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, that was that was yeah, that was dope. That was that that was all that. Oh man. <laughs> oh. Okay, so <laughs> woo, Justine, man. All right, so let's get back into it, y'all. We were we were discussing what what um, decolonized theology means, right? And so. Um, and we gave you some examples of, of decolonized theology and, you know, part of, again, part of the reason why we're making this series is to equip listeners with some very specific, tangible examples that folks can walk away with, um, and explaining some terms. And so what we're going to do now is so, so Jay, what are some, what are some ideas that you have that stick out to you as specific examples uh, one can do to begin the process of decolonizing their theology? Okay. Um, man, I feel like there's so many things that people can do, but y'all, here's the thing, okay? There are things that you cannot learn at a distance. If you are someone who is ethnically privileged in America, aka you are white, or you have come to be called white, there are things that you cannot learn at a distance. So what I would encourage you is to look around. Who are your friends? Right? Who do you have at your dinner table on Saturday nights? And ask yourself, are these people who look just like me? who have the same ideas, the same political views, the same socioeconomic status. You can read a billion books. You can go to conferences. And white people, y'all love to read books. Y'all love to go to conferences. And that's good. And you love podcasts. Oh, Oh, she got him. That's good. That's good. But here's the thing. It changes. Something something happens to you. And I think Andres might have meant, one of you mentioned this you know, maybe like a few minutes ago, but it changes you when you do life with someone and you can listen to their stories, Mm. right? It pierces you. It does something to you and you are ruined forever. My story of actually coming into racial justice, part of it is when I was in grad school, I had a lot of African-American female friends and they shared their stories with me and that changed me right? That changed me. So I would, I would encourage you to get out of your echo chambers and find you some people of color who you can learn from. Now, I'm not saying to go and make friends because they can teach you, but the context of friendships and relationships is that when you're doing life with people, personal stuff just comes out and you start sharing life and you're really able to bear the burdens of people 
that are oppressed. And one quick thing, y'all, again, I'm going to give you guys just a second Bible verse that I've also been thinking about. Psalm 137, the worship leaders are going to love this. So Abdul, I hope you're ready. (laughs) Psalm 137, and I'm going to start from verse two. This is from the NIV version. Actually, I'll just start from verse one. By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat and wept, when we remembered Zion, there on the poplars, we hang our harps. But there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And y'all, like when I, when I think of that verse, I think in a lot of spaces, people of color, we're being asked to be happy. We're being asked to, you know, sing songs and be happy and be merry and watch movies and do all these things. And dude, just stop being angry. But Abdul just mentioned this. There is a reason why people of color are angry. And if you're living at a distance, if you're living a segregated life and you are an American of European descent, then maybe you're never going to understand that anger, right? Again, there are things that you cannot learn at a distance. I would encourage you to, to begin to surround yourself, immerse yourself in spaces that are not saturated in whiteness. It will change you. Yeah, it's super good. Yeah, that was that was really good, Justine. And actually, um, among the lines of what you're talking about, my suggestion, my recommendation, is just to think about how we, and I'm I'm saying we, even the three of us, have been complicit in white body supremacy. Mm. Uh, have. And I mentioned this last time is the books that we are reading, and I'll confess myself, you know, what books am I reading? What's the music that I'm listening to? Because the same, same thing as you, Justine, you know, I was, when I started listening more to Christian music, it was, it was white, um, um, uh, what we call CCM, Christian contemporary music. And interesting, like, like your talk, Abdul, on um, Black Liberation Theology, Christian contemporary music. And yet, <laughs> you don't hear yes. hardly any black, brown, indigenous voices in that genre of music. But anyway, yes, um, is how are we participating? How are we how are we continuing the cycle? You know, it's just to it's just to really pay attention to how much and 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 I'll t- I'm talking about in the American context because most of our listenership is in the United States with growing in several other countries. So we're speaking to some of your issues at some point too. No, and and, and right, and the thing is, is it, actually it applies to all of us worldwide. Is how much of let's say America are we bringing into the text, and how much we need to take out of it. So that example about individualism, that example about book, you know, vocabulary like meekness and other things that are found in the, in the text, we need to remove our Americanness from theology. We need to remove that Western, like I was talking about classic, liberal, all those different theologies, all those uh, uh, political, political uh, theories, philosophies out of the scripture. It didn't exist when it was written. It didn't exist at that time. So go back to the purity of 
the context of the gospel and, and the time where these these uh, uh, letters and uh, these uh, uh, accounts were written and remove all the excess from from theology. Uh, I, I, I was at a conference a long time ago, pre-COVID, of course, and somebody said, if it's not going to be in heaven, why are we holding on to it now? Mm. Right? Let it let it go. Ooh. Let it go. You know what I mean? One of those things could possibly be a lot of the stuff around the concept of America and Americanism. And that's not America bashing. Okay. It's it's not. I know there's plenty of people that are still hearing what we're not saying. Yes. And and, and we don't want to do that. Um, but if it's not going to exist when Jesus comes back, why not just let it go now? Just, just let it go. Yes. Very good. Very good, man. So we are just like the boxer guy, somebody in the corner. We're working the ribs on this episode, y'all. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, because this, you know, like we shared in some of our personal examples, right? Colonized theology just does a number to you and whatever it does to you culturally or psychologically, the net effect is of it is it hampers your interaction and your encounter and your relationship with God. That's why it's important to us. That's the, that's the only reason why it's important to us. Mm-hmm. We care that you experience the fullness of God in the way that you were designed to. And I'm talking specifically to Christians right now. That's our end game for you is we want you to experience the fullness of who God made you to be and experience the, relationship, the, the fullness of the relationship with Christ without all the trappings of all of this other stuff that has come to be oppressive for people. And for those of you who aren't Christians and don't you know, subscribe to those teachings, we want you to hear that it is not the Bible that is oppressive. It is the way that Christianity has understood and interpreted the Bible that is oppressive. Come on. So that's what we want you to hear, right? So um, I would say there are, I've got a long list. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you that now. I've got a long list, but these will be in the show notes. Um, but overall, I would say, as kind of a global statement, I would say to me, decolonizing your theology means, okay, let's, let's approach the scriptures with an Eastern mind, with an Egyptian mind, with a North African mind, and with a Semitic mind, because those are the folks who wrote the dang thing. Mm-hmm. You know? So, like I said, I've got several different things, but um, I think I have seven. <laughs> okay? So, I've got seven. So, the first one is, realize that Europe and Europeans did not invent theology, like we mentioned before right? Whether it's Jewish, Christian, or Islamic, um, it was the translator, it was the transmitter, it was the interpreter for the theology that was already established in the sacred texts and other languages. So theology really is our system of of invented rules based on that. So that's what that is. Those rules aren't all bad, but we must be aware of the programming we're receiving when we encounter them. So for example, my tradition, Reformed theology, as a system is bathed in white cultural supremacy, misogyny, and normativity, white normativity. 
And so that's the first thing. The second thing is understand that colonized theology, like I mentioned in the last episode, really focuses on the teaching of Paul rather than the teachings of Jesus. So I won't say more, more about that one because I talked about that in the, in the last episode. The third thing is uh, to decolonize your theology. So do some work to understand that Western theology attempts to really de-Africanize and de-anti-Semitize the scriptures or take the, the Semitic influence out of the scriptures. So like we don't always remember the fact that the prophets of the Christian scriptures were all ethnically Jewish and uh, didn't really intend to establish a faith that was completely different than Judaism. Um, fourth thing is we have to reclaim biblical figures and early church um, forebearers to their native lands and to their native regions. Okay. So I'm going to give you just a few names on that. These are names that we commonly associate with being Roman or white. Like I said earlier in the episode, when I mentioned these names, you're going to remember that you assumed or that you were actively taught that those folks were white, or that those folks were of European descent because white didn't exist at the time that they were alive. Okay. So here's just, just some illustrations here, right? Moses in the scriptures, Moses was born in Egypt. Okay. So Moses was an Egyptian. He was a Hebrew guy born in Egypt. So he was a Hebrew Egyptian, right? He wasn't Charlton Heston. For those of you who've seen the classic 10 commandments film. Okay. Um, Simon of Cyrene, the, the, the man who carried the cross for Jesus was a Libyan. He was Cyrene. It was in modern day Libya. Uh, Justine talked about this in her liner notes from a, for a few episodes ago about just God speaking to her yes. in representation in the scriptures. Thinking about um, whenever you read in the Old Testament, the land of Cush or the Cushites or the Cushite kingdom, right? The Cushite kingdom is mentioned 57 times in the Old Testament. Cush is in Africa. It's modern day Ethiopia and Eritrea. Hmm. Okay. Um, the land of Havilah, also mentioned in the Bible, right, is, is associated with the country and the region of Sudan. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, decolonize your theology, decolonize the the decolonize your geography that informs your theology, right? The woman Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, kind of the progenitor of the Arab of the Arab race, so to speak, right? Hagar, Abraham's concubine, Sarah's maidservant. Um, Hagar was Egyptian. Uh, um. The woman mentioned in, in, in the Song of Songs, which some scholars think is, is, is a, woman, a woman named Abishag. Um, Abishag was described as dark and ruddy in the beginning of Song of Solomon. I remember. Right? Oh, so good. Dark and ruddy. So good. And that was at the time, that was, that was how people referred to folks that had African skin. So very entirely possible that the woman referred to in the book of Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, depending on your translation, was, a, was an African woman. So let's talk about sisters. If you're listening to this, let's talk about the beauty that is mentioned about you in the Bible. And by the, by the way, the Song of Solomon is said to be part of the love story about Solomon himself and his courtship with this woman who was possibly African. Come on. Preach, sir. Preach. And he describes how beautiful she is. So in the New Testament, here's another one. 
we read in the 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 conversion of Candace's uh, European or Ethiopian treasure or treasurer in Acts twenty eight or I'm sorry Acts eight verses twenty six through twenty nine. Candace was the royal uh, was the royal title of the queen mother of Nubia. Hello, Nubia is in Africa. Nubia is also modern day Sudan. So, I mean, those are just a few examples to illustrate the point, right? And so, listen, black people, people of the diaspora, and those of you who aren't black who are listening to my voice right now, but to my, to my folks, to my, to my African-American, my black folk, my kinsmen in the, fr- in the flesh, my Afro-Caribbean, my Afro-Latino and Latina people, you are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of the almighty God of the universe. Right, And I really need you to see that Christianity is not the white man's religion. It has just been co-opted to serve the needs of whiteness. And so the actual Hebrew and New Testament scriptures are incredibly beautiful. And I just want you to see yourselves in them because you're there all over the place. So if Christianity, again, is not your tradition, that's completely fine. You still have inherent worth, beauty, and majesty, obviously. But I'm talking to my people right now. And if you have a, and if you have a criticism, you just address the criticism. Because it's the interpretation of the book. Yes. That's led to all this. It was never in there. Yes. So the entire construction of whiteness itself, again, is meant to be a gaslight from having you realize how valued you are to humanity. Okay. Now Hmm. all my points aren't very long. That was, that's just the first one. (laughs) So this will, this, this, I'm going to move through these, but I just want you to understand that, but think about some of the names, right. That we think about when we hear these names, we think they might be white, uh, Tertullian, Augustine, Athanasius of Alexander of Alexandria, um, origin of Alexandria, right? So those four folks, um, Augustine, he was St. Augustine of Hippo. Hippo is in Libya and North Africa. Okay. We get the idea of the idea of just war and just cause for war that's still used in our foreign policy and in our military policy and in military academies today from this North African man. So Athanasius of Alexandria, also born in Alexandria, which is by the way, Egypt, as you guys, if you, if you guys don't know that. Okay. Um, he was, he was called the black dwarf. <laughs> Dude was called the black dwarf. <laughs> so another one, origin of Alexandria, also in Egypt, obviously. So, I mean, these are just people who, who are central figures to Christian, uh, to modern Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. So Tertullian is who we get the idea of the Trinity from. Tertullian was from Carthage. Carthage is modern-day Tunisia. Wow. Yes. He was, a, he was a Berber. The Berbers lived in these scattered communities across Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Lib- Libya, and Egypt. Okay? And so um, the idea from studying the scriptures, the idea that has come to be known as the, the fact that God exists simultaneously as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit comes from this North African Carthaginian. Wow. So to move on here. So good. But realize again that the dominant frame for Western Christianity is control. Also realize that that control is unbiblical. And so 
you know, the, these forms of control include things like having only approved translations, having a system that lifts up personalities and people rather than the actual words of scripture. Um, and understand that we're not trying to erase the European contributions. We're trying to highlight the non-European ones because most of the, if not all of the contributions of, of scripture from the Bible were from folks who aren't from Europe. They hadn't traveled that far yet except maybe Gaul, which is modern-day Germany and France, okay? Um, mm. So uh, some other things that you can do to, to decolonize your theology, and I actually have two more, is one of them is read theologians of color and read women theologians. Here's just a couple of names. James Cone, which I mentioned before, Octavia Albert, Carl Ellis, Charles Octavius Booth, Lisa Fields, Lemuel Haynes. There's so many more theologians of color that you could read. And the last one, which is actually, we covered this one already before, decolonize your music ministry and your worship service. Listen to music of other traditions. Bathe yourself in them and learn songs of different cultural and ethnic traditions. Pay attention to the instruments you use and what traditions mm. do they represent. You know, I didn't grow up in church, so I'm, so I'm deeply steeped in soul music and funk and jazz and hip-hop. And so <laughs> that music is much more percussive in its architecture. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, I still haven't really gotten used to guitar, led praise, and worship. just not my bag. <laughs> <laughs> but just listen to other traditions, and I promise you they will change how you experience music when you are leading worship, if you're, if you're a vocalist or an instrumentalist. So those are the things that I have to, de to decolonize your theology. I know that was a long list, but, you know, I'm going to give you just my top one out of all those near the end of the episode here. Wow, y'all, those were so good. I was just thinking as Abdul was speaking, I was like, when I go back to listen to this podcast, I'm going to have my notebook and a pen and I'm literally going to be taking notes because there's just so much goodness, so much goodness in this. Ah, oh, y'all. So this is where we wrap up. This was such a fun episode. So fun. So, um, Andres, Abdul, what are some of your final thoughts for our listeners? I know we've already shared so much, but what's like one thing that you would say in conclusion? Wow. In conclusion. Okay. Um, I might end up one, gonna... one action step. Sorry. Okay. Yes. One, one action step. I think we've, I think we've covered some of those action steps. I, I really want to just cover something that just, just came up as we're wrapping up here that if for some of you, if the emotion that you're feeling is anger, I want you to question that anger. Okay. Before, before you take any step, you know, so I'm actually recommending an anti-step. <laughs> um, if this conversation, and there's plenty for someone who's taking a, the first few steps in this that might get upset about this, question your own anger, question your own, question your feelings first. Like where, why, why am I responding in anger to this? as if the only response there is, is anger, right? So, so just, just uh, yeah, basically listen to your body, listen to yourself and pay attention to what's coming up and don't dismiss it. Just wrestle with it for a little bit. That's good. That's good. Just wrestle with it. 
that would be my recommendation. Take everything that we've talked about here and whatever negative emotion is coming up, deal with it, wrestle with it. Oh, uh, I like the anti-step. That's something that I actually recommend in my workshops at the end when I give people a lot of information. The first step is just let it sit. So I, I think, thank you for that, Andres. That's perfect. That's, that's perfectly timed. Yep. Let it sit. I like that. I like that. Let it sit. Let it sit. Let, let, let it marinate. So um, I think, yeah, of the, of the seven that, or the however many that it was, I've lost count, but of the ones I outlined, probably the one that's maybe at um, the top of my list, other than the one that Justina, I hope is gonna, this is going to be the one she brings up, but the one at the top of my list is decolonize your theology by understanding the theological contexts of others. And that, and so I would say of the list of names that I read that will be in the show notes or find some other, some other way to, to, to search it out, um, absorb some, some, some theologians of color and understand how they encounter Jesus from their perspective and how they're writing about it. And not as a, not, not to critique whether or not they're being quote, properly theological or those kind of things, just understand how they encounter in their expression of their faith. Um, be, aside from the, the, the first step of kind of letting it sit, like Andres said. Mm. Wow, Abdul, so good. Um, I would say for me, and maybe I'm going to share this because this is where I'm at as well, is read, for those of you who are believers, right? Read your Bible with fresh eyes. Because now at 28, as I'm reading my Bible, I am seeing that the launching pad of the church was a multi-ethnic and a communal experience. I never knew that. Mm. And I've read Acts before, right? So I'm beginning to read the word of God with fresh eyes. And I'm like, God is about community. He's about family, but he's also about multi-ethnicity. Jesus was not fair. As you read the gospels, Jesus was not fair. Jesus always made a point to highlight people who are marginalized, women, people who are considered mixed race or mixed blood, right? He was always trying to tear down. He made a point of tearing down negative stereotypes about people. And y'all, as believers, like we should be doing the same thing. But the only way we can get there is by beginning to read the word of God with fresh eyes, right? Just having those fresh eyes. Then in line with that as well, look at your churches, look at your worship team, look at the leadership team at your churches and ask yourself who is being centered. Yes. So I have actually also in my city last year, I went on every church's website, literally every church in my city. And I kid you not, 99% of our churches had mostly white old men in their leadership. So you guys, we need to begin to ask ourselves these questions. Why? Who are we centering? Whose stories are we centering? It's time to hold ourselves Mm. accountable, y'all. That's really good. Thank you for that, Jay. Yeah, one more thing. One more thing based on what Justine just said. And it's not enough that you have black and brown people on your website and in your videos. They got to have some type of power. 
And power means that they can make a decision and it's done. Ooh, yeah. So it's not just what looks good on the screen, is what actual voice do they have? And can mm-hmm. things be done with that different voice, that different perspective? That's that's really good because I one thing I have observed from evangelicalism after 20 years is that it loves diverse faces. It does not like diverse voices. Yeah. Well, that does it for us for now. So next time we will continue with part three of decolonizing our theology. Um, And this one is going to be actually we're going to be in this last one, we're going to be addressing toxic patriarchy in the church. So decolonizing your patriarchy up in here, man. (laughs) (laughs) So that's going to be the next episode in, in our part three, in our three part series on decolonizing theology, because we're going to just really take straight aim at patriarchy and sexism within the church. So if you, if you like the show, if you like the content, I know sometimes we get really kind of deep in it and, and whatnot, but if you like the, like the content, if you're encouraged or challenged by it, please like, subscribe, share, and most importantly, drop us a review. So this is going to help us um, climb in the podcast rankings and help other folks find us and find our community because you know we can always use more soldiers. And by the way, thanks in advance for all the love and thank you for all the love you've given us so far. So if you if you have questions about anything we cover on the podcast, you have suggested episode ideas, or you just want to reach out, become a member of our community on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Christian soldier. That's S-O-U-L-J-A-H. Or email us at hello at Christian soldier.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm Abdullah. I'm Andres. And I'm Justine. Until next time, y'all, keep the faith. Peace. Paz. Amani. The Christian Soldier Podcast is brought to you by the Christian Soldier Collective, a Jesus-centered community dedicated to the pursuit of unity, cultural and ethnic conciliation, and social justice within the church. Theme song is The Ace by Ballpoint. The Christian Soldier Podcast is a production of the Christian Soldier Collective and Monarch Training and Development.